0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute. Well, that didn't take long, did it? Rishi Sunak has barely been Prime Minister for a fortnight and we've already seen his first ministerial resignation. Gavin Williamson has shut up and gone away again. Perhaps that's the last we'll be hearing about his infamous pet tarantula Kranos for a while. We'll take a look at Williamson's resignation, what it means for Sunak's government and what the PM needs to do now to demonstrate that his commitment to integrity is genuine. On the subject of turning words into action, we'll be catching up on Richard Sunak's appearance at the COP27 summit and ask whether his government has a credible plan for hitting its net zero target. And then we'll look ahead to next week and the biggest challenge yet for the Prime Minister. And that's the unveiling of the government's long-awaited, much-delayed, often-rebadged and endlessly-rewritten fiscal plan. To discuss all this, I'm in the studio today with IFG senior fellow Kath Haddon and Tom Sass, our associate director and expert on all things net zero. Hi both. Hi, Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted that we're joined by Henry Hill, deputy editor at Conservative Home. Hi, Henry. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Before we get going on life in the Westminster jungle, Henry, I have to ask, how do you rank Matt Hancock's I'm a Celebrity Gamble against the reality TV escapades of other MPs?
1: I mean, it's crushingly tragic. Um, It's 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 genuinely hard to sum up how utterly utterly divorced he seems. Uh, But again, other people have done it. You know, Nadine Dorries went into the jungle and she came back to be culture secretary. So, but there's something about the combination of the tragedy of the event with the fact that it's Matt Hancock, which means that (laughs) I, I think that it's maybe the worst of all of them. It's the combination of what he's doing and his previous seniority. You know, he's not like Lembert Opic, who was fundamentally a Liberal Democrat MP, who was always a bit weird. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's maybe the worst ever.
0: Is anyone watching it? No, I, I refuse to. <laughs> Henry?
1: No. <laughs> uh,
0: well, there's still time for Sir Gavin Williamson to join him, I believe. Um, talking of him, Henry, do you think in the end uh, he had to go this week?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, basically, the, the point is, uh, there comes a point where even if there is a, a case to be made for the, for the defence, um, and I think maybe on the Morton stuff, you know, you, there was, uh, at least it wasn't great, but I don't think it was. it's really possible for a backbench MP to bully the chief whip. Um, there comes a point when the resources you have to dedicate to defending it are not worth what you're defending. And I think that, you know, Rishi Sunak was already having to fend off perhaps getting rid of one member of his cabinet, um, the idea that he would spend the entirety of what little time he has before Austerity 2.0 gets unveiled to an ungrateful nation um, defending Gavin Williamson would just have been absolutely abysmal. So, so yeah, the story was snowballing and he quite clearly had to act.
0: Um, why do you think people have kept giving uh, Gavin Williamson jobs? I mean, in this case, it was a pretty ill-defined one, wasn't it? So it wasn't as though... Sunak sort of thought, I've got this job, and and Gavin is is the person I must have to do it. it. It seems that he he wanted him around in the cabinet office.
1: I mean, the best explanation I've seen is that Gavin Williamson does have a degree of skill at party management stuff, albeit I think outweighed by uh, innumerable innumerable flaws. Um, but but he is sort of good at that kind of uh, that kind of thing. So given that, really, although there's a big Pay, Tory majority on paper. In reality, the, the Conservative Party is extremely divided, and Rishi Sunak is going to have to govern as if he had as much smaller majority. Having somebody there, basically, to be a kind of unofficial extension of the Whips Office, like the deniable ops wing of the, wing, of the Whips <laughs> Office, um, would potentially have been useful. But unfortunately, you know, Gavin combines that real skill set with so many other kind of countervailing uh, drawbacks as a candidate that I think Rishi should probably have known better.
0: And that that's actually sounds like a, a very plausible explanation to me. If if Williamson was part of that sort of party management um, strategy, what do you think having him on the back benches now means for, for Sunak?
1: Well, again, he can cause trouble. Um, I think that unlike unlike some other people, I don't think there's a big Gavin Williamson caucus um, that he can that he can rally around. But on some of these votes, you know, if, you, if you're going to be looking at tight votes where every vote counts, and on some of these things, I think you might get there. Then, yeah, having one more MP who you know has been chief whip knows where people's pressure points are. Um, if he becomes a determined rebel, that is obviously going to cause an awful lot of problems for the government potentially on on tricky votes. So there's a reason that Rishi Sunak brought him in. I think there was probably there were probably better ways to try and buy him off. Uh, but losing him, and this is the same problem Rishi's going to have whenever he loses anyone from his government at this point. You know he can't afford to have more disgruntled people who feel they have nothing to lose on the backbenches, ready to make trouble in what is going to be a very difficult Parliament.
0: And Kath. Kirstarmer, unsurprisingly, went quite big on the Williamson story mm-hmm. at PMQs this week. How do you think that worked out for him? I mean, most of the uh, say
2: reviewers, journalists, uh, seem to think that that Starmer did well in the sort of battleground that is PMQs. But I think the more important thing for for Rishi Sunak is, um, as Henry was just saying, you know, this is a potential weak spot for Sunak, and not even just for his own um, efforts, his own integrity. It is the fact that that Sunak has inherited. The problems of his predecessors and the sort of dirty linen of his predecessors. So, um, when you see uh, an MP with loads of or a minister with loads of allegations sort of swirling around them, to come up with the answers that um, Sunak's coming up with of "I didn't know specific allegations." That was exactly what brought down Boris Johnson over the Chris Pincher stuff. Um, Sort of the the big, you know, what did you know when? and in this case, it may be true. And Sunak may be sort of feeling his own integrity when he stands up and says what he believes is fundamentally true, but it just doesn't work as an answer. Um, So it, that problem of, yes, but you appointed him, that will never go away. And it, it's the same sort of shadow that is is sitting over the Home Secretary as well. Uh, and we were discussing this earlier. I mean, you know, in, there comes a point when, your risk is that any ministers might have something or other lurking in the in the shadows that you've then got to deal with. Um, and I think actually, you know, thinking about what Henry was just saying, what the Williamson case also shows is that the factionalism in the Conservative Party is not just down to sort of big policy areas or anything. It is also people with grievances about other people and the things that they have done in the last twelve years of government. Um and so when you've got just all sorts of enemies swirling all over the place who've got beefs with, you know, particular groups of other MPs or particular MPs in, in, in question, that's a really tricky thing for you as Prime Minister to, to manage. So um obviously Starmer went sort of big on the whole weakness um elements of 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 SUNAC and tried to get that characterization out there. But it is a weakness that Sunak really needs to think about. It's it's one thing to sort of say, I'm a, you know, um, a person with great integrity. Integrity will be at the heart of my government. I will appoint a an advisor um or ministerial interests and so forth. But it's just, you've got to go big on this stuff because it is just a weakness that um, you've inherited from your predecessors and and a point of vulnerability that's going to keep coming up because other
0: problems will occur. Yeah, and I guess from the Labour Party's point of view, there's a attraction in, in portraying the issue as a as a continuity problem. Yeah, a problem of the party
2: rather than just of um, you know Boris Johnson and now he's moved on, everything's fine.
0: I mean, I kind of think the interesting thing is going to be if. If a scandal breaks, which is about actually what one of the people that Sunak has appointed has done in government as opposed yep. to some historical thing which is dragged up? How does he deal with that?
2: Well, in a sense, I think that's easier because that's the moment, I mean, we saw this with Liz Truss when she did sack Suella Bradman, Um is that's the moment when you can say, yep, something obviously has happened, I'm getting rid of them. Um In this case, it was yet again Sunak balancing the Williamson he knows versus the Williamson that's coming out in these allegations. and And it was actually Williamson who resigned. It wasn't Sunak, if the reports are to be believed, that sort of was pushing for it. Um, so I think that would be easier for Sunak to sort of show I'm decisive. It's where it's this stuff where it's like you can call, it, you can say, "Oh, it's a media witch hunt," or "They're they're out to get me," or whatever. But you know, politics is perception, um, and if you're saying that integrity is that heart of your government, then the public perception of integrity is something that you've
0: got to deal with whether or not you feel that it was is right Isn't no gavin williamson that said perception becomes reality um tom do we actually know what williamson was doing as a as a minister without portfolio what is the geospatial commission
3: <laughs> well yeah r- rather amusingly the cabinet office did actually publish his responsibilities i think last week as minister without qu- portfolio and it included things like the Geospatial Commission, which is sort of looks after location data, lots of people wondering what mischief Gavin Williamson was going to get up to given access to that, but also things like the Government Property Office and the Great Campaign, which is those rather annoying billboards that you see in sort of airports and, and train stations. I mean, the truth is, none of these things were really things that require sort of a huge degree of, of ministerial oversight. And actually, what this was, was sort of part of a, a long and sort of noble tradition of prime Minister's is essentially sort of making up roles for for people that they find useful to have in and around uh, the cabinet office, sort of fixers and, and brokers, as, as Henry and Kath have been saying. Um, but the problem is those people sort of do need to be able to operate behind the scenes. And when they become the story, I think that ultimately becomes a, a bit of a problem. I mean, one of the interesting points, I think, just on, on what Henry said there about the Essentially, Williamson having been a sort of extension of the the Whips office, you know, mostly what you read is that he was brought in for his, his party management skills. It does point to just how difficult I think Sunak is going to find managing his party over the next couple of years. The fact that he thought he needed that supplement there, uh, and it was sort of worth taking the risk on putting someone as controversial as, as Williamson in that position.
0: And Henry, I mean, you have your uh, ear to the ground. How happy generally would you say the Conservative? Party is right now. I mean, clearly, lots of lots of factions, and and as Kath was saying, um differences of view and relationships which have built up over twelve years in government. But how is the party feeling about Sunak's start?
1: Do you mean the party in Parliament?
0: Oh uh, well, both, in fact.
1: uh I, I mean, party members, as far as we can see, uh, seem to be prepared to give Sunak the benefit of the doubt. He hasn't had a rapturous reception. Um, as other, you know, incoming Tory prime ministers did in, in Conservative Homes monthly survey, you know, May and Johnson both came in with uh, astonishing scores and, and he hasn't, but they, but, you know, they're broadly, they're broadly supportive. I mean, I think the problem with the, when it comes to the parliamentary party is that basically Rishi Sunak is trying to do something which I think is probably impossible, which is unify the Conservative Party from a position of weakness. Um, because what actually unifies Tory MPs more often than not is is strength and, and a sense of direction. You know, if you look historically, if you've got a leader who knows what they want to do and is driving towards it, most Tory, not all, but most Tory MPs will row in behind it without actually having all that much ideological objection to where it, the precise direction in which they're going. You know, there were all those people who, before Boris Johnson became prime minister, said that they'd have to think seriously about whether or not they would stay in the party. Some of them ended up serving in his government. You had people who sort of really didn't like what Theresa May was trying to do with the leftward tack with the Tory party, who were then huge enthusiasts for pretty much exactly the same <laughs> policy agenda under Boris Johnson. So if there was a Sunakism, uh, if you like, and if he had entered Downing Street maybe in the summer and been able to strike a positive tone, I think he could probably have cohered most of the Tory party, parliamentary Tory party, into something he could wield. But he's not. He's come in basically as the default option on the on the second attempt. He's going to have to uh, abandon almost all of his positive policy agenda that he put to members in in the summer in order to focus on delivering austerity that nobody is prepared for or wants. And as a result. When the Tory Party is at a halt, it starts fighting, and once that fighting starts, it's very hard to to stop it.
0: And I guess with the prospect of a, a an election coming up in the polls, where they are, maybe quite a lot of MPs feel they haven't got so much to lose.
1: I mean, that's true. I mean, actually, one of the things that's probably going to be a great boon um, to Rishi, one of the few he has, is that. Um, Boris Johnson managed to repeal the awful fixed-term Parliament Act because that means that now um, he can threaten a dissolution. Uh, he and Jeremy Hunt can say, "Look, if if you kick up, if you don't allow us to pass." whatever's going to be, I mean, I know we're discussing this later, but if you don't allow us to pass what's going to be a very painful package of measures, we can't have the sort of nonsense we had after 2017, where you vote it all down. And then the next day you vote that you have confidence in the government. We can simply declare this to be a confidence issue and basically trapped between austerity and a 30 point poll deficit. I think most Tory MPs will, will, will vote for whatever the government brings forward. So it's a useful weapon for him.
0: And speaking of Boris Johnson, um, can I ask your, your thoughts on his resignation honours list, which is uh, making the news again?
1: I think Rishi Sunak should spike it if he has the power to do so. Um, I'm generally a big defender of the House of Lords and a big defender of the honours system. But I think that you know it's it's an unfortunate fact that recent resignation honours have made both of those systems harder to defend. Um so you know i I don't think there's really a case for putting somebody who is a parliamentary assistant in the House of Lords uh, and making them a legislator for life. I don't think that uh adds to the credibility of the system. So I think a relatively th- simple thing that Rishi Sinak could do, I'm not entirely sure about what the mechanical powers would be, would be he should say a resignation on his list should only be for a prime minister who has served you know four years or a full term. um I will forego my own resignation on his list if I don't win the next election, and I am you know spiking Boris Johnson's and presumably Liz trusses I, it just in order to preserve the overall system I think that we need to stop you know prime ministers who've only served for a very short period of time, especially when like Boris Johnson they have scant respect for the system and are constantly taking the Mickey um, from exploiting them
0: Unfortunately we have Kath Haddon on hand who can tell us actually what the what the rules are what the mechanism is um, actually it is up to the current Prime Minister I mean the convention is that the current Prime Minister will, uh, put Respect forward to the Queen the, yeah, yeah, the resignation yeah. list but Boris Johnson wasn't much a, a fan of conventions was he?
2: No and I think you know th- I agree with Henry completely that um, I think yet again we're seeing Boris Johnson managing to poke such a massive hole in a convention and practice that everyone's like why the hell do we do that and that needs to stop um, and I mean, resignation honours, you, as Prime Minister, you get enough opportunities to, uh, appoint people to the House of Lords. And I agree. If you want the House of Lords to have any meaning whatsoever, it has to be in some respect on the basis of these people will make the, you know, necessary legislators um it shouldn't be because i need to reward them because they prop me up in government and i know there is the political reality of how um promises of peerages help when you're doing a reshuffle and you don't want to have to give somebody a job or you want to sack them and all the rest of it but that is terrible it's a terrible indictment on our system that we allow that to to continue i think there might be easier ways for sunak if you wanted to to um um, if not completely spike, at least sort of poke a massive hole in it, which would be to support some of the suggested changes to the House of Lords appointments, uh, commission, HOLAC, um, both in putting it on a statutory footing longer term and also in making its recommendations, uh, completely transparent. And that means that if HOLAC turned around and said, actually, these Boris Johnson, uh, sort of recommendations, aren't a good idea, then that allows Rishi Sunak to
0: support it and say, well, I'm listening to HOLAC, so um, sorry, no. I guess there also is a question about the the criteria which HOLAC used, which I believe are pretty narrow. So I'm not sure, you know, yes, I agree about making them public, but you might also want to, to be clearer about what the basis is Basis is on which it's evaluating. yeah i mean the thing
2: is once you start pulling at this string there the, there are so many problems with the house of lords that uh need improving and there's been a good debate in the pages of the times newspaper uh the last couple of days about uh what we need to do about it so um you know lords that's a subject of another could podcast. be back on the agenda <laughs> yeah
0: Let's shift our attention now to the global stage and Rishi Sunak's appearance at the COP27 summit. Tom, you wrote a great piece for us on why Sunak should attend the conference at the point at which he wasn't uh, going to. Do you think we should read much into the fact that he deprioritized it at the start?
3: I don't think we should criticize him too much because I think, you know, ultimately he came round and 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 he is there and he's he's sort of you know made a big speech there and and, and put his weight behind the UK effort i think if if it does reveal anything perhaps a couple of things you know maybe a bit of inexperience in number 10 you know this was sort of days into the sunak premiership uh, they probably didn't need to be putting out a statement saying he wasn't going to cop because he was focusing on domestic priorities i mean that might have seemed like it was the type of line that was going to work for a while, but actually, it made look Sunak look a little bit parochial and a bit sort of short-sighted. When actually, most global leaders were going to this, and it is the big, biggest, and most pressing challenge uh, the world faces. I think the other thing it possibly reveals is is just making that shift from chancellor to, to prime minister. So I think actually, in one world, Sunak might have preferred not to go to COP and stay with his spreadsheets and and sort of um, focusing on the, on the autumn statement that he's got coming up. And clearly as chancellor, he actually found it quite useful to be a bit sort of distant from the net zero agenda and sort of draw that line between him and and Boris Johnson. Now that he's prime minister, actually, you know, the UK has a big record and a big role on the global stage on on climate change to sort of defend and to push and promote. and actually, lots of voters want to see the, the UK's prime minister doing that. You know, net zero is very popular. So I think he quite quickly came round. But I think it did show a couple of things about how number 10 was was working in that initial stage.
0: And what have you been picking up from what's been happening in Shum or Shake? Is it just a bunch of leaders greenwashing their political credentials? Or is there anything uh, constructive happening?
3: So, I mean, there's, there are different schools of thought on these these cops. And some people sort of say, look, you know, we're on the sort of 27th spin of the wheel and still global emissions are going up. So it's just a kind of pointless talking shop. I don't think that's quite right. I think you do need the sort of top down multilateral sort of work. And then you also need the bottom up and you need the sort of governments and the citizens prepared to actually do these things. I mean, in terms of this conference, it's it's really interesting. It's the obviously the first one since Glasgow, which was a big COP. Um, at Glasgow, there were sort of lots of headline agreements on things that, you know, the UK talked lots about coals, coal cars, cash trees, that sort of thing. But actually a lot of the detail was sort of kicked down, down the road, um, and I mean, w- w- so far, I think it 's clear that this is another very big cop. I mean it might might be the case that we don 't really have small cops anymore. One of the things that happened at Glasgow was we changed the the sort of mechanism from being five yearly reviews of targets to annual reviews and actually, I think the pressure is only going to kind of continue to increase from from here on in. Um, the other really big focus has been on on finance um, so clearly, this is a cop being held in in Africa. There's been a lot of discussion about different aspects of this. So there's a a sort of 100 billion per year promise that rich countries made over a decade ago to to finance uh, climate action in poorer countries, which has still not quite been met. There's been this slightly controversial discussion about loss and damage, which is the idea of paying for the kind of historical uh, responsibility for having caused climate change. Um, But actually, I think the most important thing that's coming out so far is poorer countries turning around and just saying... All of that stuff is important, but actually the most important thing is we need to be able to finance the, the transition to clean energy in our companies. And if you look at the challenges they're facing there, they're, they're really steep. So in the rich world, we can borrow very cheaply to build wind turbines to sort of put in clean energy uh, infrastructure. In, in developing countries, you might be paying sort of 14% interest rates. So they're saying to the World Bank, to the IMF, to others, you need to find a way of us being able to finance this transition around the world. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen.
0: And there's been quite a lot of discussion about the extent to which Sunak is genuinely committed to a green agenda. What are you going to be looking for in terms of the actual signals which we can judge him by? What are the things that you think he would need to do um, to to be convincing on this agenda?
3: Yeah. So there's two things, I think. So on, on the world stage, uh, there's been this really interesting proposal at COP in, in Sheikh from the prime minister of, uh, uh, Barbados, um, around reforming the IMF and the world bank and the way that they, uh, give out loans and the way that they support private finance to, to move towards, uh, poorer countries, France and Canada are sort of starting to get behind that agenda a bit. I think if Sunak does that, then that will be a clear sign of him. And, you know, he's, a, he's a finance guy, um, sort of wanting to sort of get behind, uh, a, a sort of quite ambitious solution to, to do this differently. Um, I think on the domestic side, uh, the big test is probably not. We're probably not going to see for a little bit of time. Uh, The government's due to publish a a sort of updated net zero strategy in March, uh, and it was actually its original net zero strategy, which came out under Johnson just before COP26, uh, was found in the High Court to be unlawful because it hadn't sort of set out exactly where the emissions reductions would come from from the different policies. I think Sunak's done uh, some good things uh, in terms of sort of shifting away from the trust sort of focus on on fracking. He's still not come through with a position on onshore wind, which a lot of people would see as a, a big area of opportunity for the UK. Um, but I think that, yeah, that, that that's going to be the big test in March, whether the, the UK can sort of get itself on track and, and sort of practice what it's preaching.
0: Henry, Boris Johnson was also at COP, and you wrote a piece for The Guardian considering what... Um, Boris Johnson is is wanting to do next. Is this all about his attempts to sort of rewrite his own narrative or do you think that a comeback is a real possibility?
1: Um, I mean, I speaking as somebody who's predicted eight of the last one Boris Johnson collapses, um, <laughs> I need to be suitably cautious about ruling out uh, another Boris Johnson comeback. There are people, most of them pessimists, it has to be said, uh, who think that it's per- it's possible. You know, there are two scenarios. I think one is... The Tories are still really behind in the polls in, say, a year. The, the Rishi Sunak's clearly failed to turn things around. And so this meme of Boris, the election winner, just starts to seize panicky Tory MPs. Uh, and the second is that the, the, you know, the Tories lose the election, and then he comes back as leader of the opposition, which is something that might suit him a lot better than being prime minister. But personally, and what I said in the piece was, I, I don't think that a, a comeback is likely enough for him to take the risks involved in seeking one. Because ultimately, Boris is a storyteller more than he is anything else. And I think his consideration at this point is, what does my story look like? What's my my narrative going to be? And for all that I think it's ridiculous, there are people who are prepared to buy this kind of stabbed in the back myth that he's, that he's perpetrating, you know, and it will only become easier to sell when, you know, Liz Truss crashed and burned, you know, Rishi Sunak's going to provide over austerity that's probably not going to make the Tories very popular. And Boris will be able to say, look, you know, if only you'd stuck with me, comrades, um, you know, there would have been cake for all and all would have been well. And there will be an audience. It won't be a necessarily as big an audience as he had in the past, but there will be an audience for this. And if he tries to come back, the odds are that he'll fail. And that failure, that rejection will do really serious damage to this myth, which he can continue to spin out and was probably of great comfort um, to to him personally. I mean, think about Margaret Thatcher, you know, there there were Thatcherites uh, probably even to this day somewhere who continually say, oh, you know, Margaret Thatcher never lost an election, which is true. But she would have lost in 1992 because she was satanically unpopular. But because she was never put to that test, this myth endures. And I think that Boris is probably savvy enough that he recognises that cultivating that idea of Boris Johnson, the great lost prince of Red Wall Toryism, is probably more valuable to him than coming back and having a sort of Waterloo.
0: That's very interesting. Cass, we've also seen lots of pictures at COP of uh, Sunak embracing Emmanuel Macron. what do new prime ministers have to learn uh, about the art of dealing with other world leaders and how do they learn those lessons? Well, I mean, you know, going back to to Tom's point about the, the U-turn on going to COP, the first
2: one is that that's why it's valuable for you to be at these um, events, obviously. Um, G20, I think, is it next week? Um, it's it's the bilaterals. It's the, the face time with world leaders. And as Chancellor, he would have had a bit of that with finance leaders and so forth. Um But as, as leader, um, as, um, of the country, it, it's kind of of a completely different order and you know you oftentimes only get a very short period of time they put out all the the various sort of bilaterals that he'd managed to have um but it's more about as you say that face time allows other people to then go and piggyback off of it uh, so i think that in itself would have been an important lesson that um prime ministers have to be on the world stage that it absorbs a huge amount of your time and that's frustrating if you do want to just sit with your spreadsheets um but that's the job that's the job you wanted and um, and um, if you want to get stuff done in the world, you have to be part of that gang and you have to be seen um, and you have to be sort of making time for other people. So um I think it will be a bit of that. And I think it is very important for him that this early on he's been able to do that kind of thing because – um you know Boris Johnson; he had had time on the world stage as as foreign secretary, but also as mayor of London, especially running an Olympics. Um, and also, he's the kind of character that is good in those scenarios. And some of it is about being able to go in uh, with almost sort of personal strength and a dominance of character, uh, and so forth, to be able to sort of mix it in these in these big um, world events. Um, and uh, you know, Sunak, a very clever guy, but he will be seen as more inexperienced on the world stage by a lot of these leaders who have been sort of around houses a few times. So um, he's got to sort of make sure that he's um, using his position for what's best for the country and for his agenda.
3: I think the the Macron relationship is interesting, apart from providing some wonderful photos (laughs) this week. uh, Stefan Russo, I think it was, who sort of caught the two of them approaching one another. you can see actually that, you know, if you look at their backgrounds, the two of them might have some sort of common ground in their sort of approach to politics. But also Macron can be massively helpful to Sunak's premiership in the next couple of years. I mean, if he can start to demonstrate some progress on the small boats issue, where of course the relationship with France is is really, really important, um, and he can sort of be that kind of link point to having that bigger role on the world stage and showing he's a sort of prime minister who can get things done. I think that's very helpful for Sunak.
0: Very interesting. Well, after that short trip to El Sheikh, let's return to Westminster and look ahead to next week's big moment, and that's Friday's autumn statement. Henry, the pitch has been rolled. Expectations are being managed. Is the Conservative Party ready to jump in behind whatever Chancellor Jeremy Hunt sets out?
1: Um, I mean, I don't know if it's ready, but it will probably end up, for the reasons that I've said, it will probably end up just having to do it, um, because there really is there really is no alternative. right? I, I, th- I think actually part of the problem is that because he's delayed the the chancellor and the prime minister have delayed this 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 statement this budget there's a sense i don't know i don't know the extent to which it's real but there is a slight sense to which the fear seems to have left tory mps you know in the immediate aftermath of liz truss when they were staring down the barrel of a market collapse and you know mortgages spiraling and everything else i think tory mps were sort of right yeah okay Rishi sunak's in we're going to have to fix this and now everything's calmed down i think there's an element of complacency and you can see that in the way that they're talking about fighting off different cuts and i don't think they've necessarily internalized that if they would if they don't pass what's going to be an extremely painful package of measures you will just get the trust thing again and everything will go haywire so ready is perhaps pushing it a little bit. But ultimately, I think that the Chancellor and the Prime Minister will be able to get some sort of package through. Um, they are putting out scare what I hope are scare stories at the moment, so much I think Tory MPs will be hoping are scare stories, to try and make the eventual package look more palatable. And of course, they'll be trying to build in a little bit of headroom so that ideally, by 2024, Rishi Sunak can find some money to give the voters uh, to persuade them to re-elect him. But it's going to be very painful. And for Tory MPs who were elected in 2019 on a manifesto, which was really, if it was quite vague in a lot of the specifics, at least broadly about a new sort of conservatism, more at ease with public investment. For those MPs, many of whom represent seats that have voted Tory for the first time and really like took a gamble on the conservatives. You know they, they we ba- they basically lost a couple of years to the pandemic. Then they lost a co- then they lost a year to Boris Johnson being ineffective. And now they're sort of closing in on a general election with precious little to put on their leaflets. I think that's the way one of them put it to me. You know, just to, to say look this is what you've got after 5 years of this conservative government you voted for and now they're going to have to oversee a, a program of austerity. It's it's they they're not ready. They're not happy. But I think they will probably do it if only to avoid a general election.
0: And do you think there's a kind of sense in which there's a bit of it's a bit unfair for for hunt and sunak the extent to which they're going to be required because of the nervousness of the markets to define the cuts and the sorts of things that they are planning to do some distance out in a way that actually is probably economically quite undesirable to have to be to give that level of specificity at this stage but that they're going to have to do it because that's what's what's needed in order to to keep everyone calm
1: yeah, I mean they're absolutely they're absolutely stuck between between a rock and a hard place, and and that's only really the start of the problems. You know, the the, the sheer the combination of, of opposition amongst conservative backbenchers, specifically, towards anything sort of that might be a big immediate easier. You know, what what's the biggest thing you could do to try and close the fiscal gap without doing cuts? It's growth. What are the two things you could do to deliver growth? Immigration or house building. Ideally, both, but you know, one of the two. Uh, Tory MPs won't wear either of them. Um, you've got the imperative of protecting things like the pension triple lock and other and other entitlements, which means you have to raise taxes even further, which I think is probably economically counterproductive. So yeah, they're in a really bad spot. You know, it's, it's a function of being in a democracy that you, you, you can't necessarily sit back with the sort of Olympian seeing like a state detachment and just do what you think is best. You do have to balance different uh, different competing pressure groups and so on. But it's it's, I, do, I think Jeremy Hunt probably has perhaps the most miserable task that has faced any Conservative Chancellor that I can immediately think of off the top of my head.
2: It's also worth saying, I, Henry sets out there some of the sort of different groups of issues that are likely to be um, you know, problem for, for Hunt and Sunak. And some of that falls into the things that are very much constituency felt. So anything that adds to sort of the cost of living problem, anything that, um, you know, their particular constituencies, whether it's planning or, or whatever, that um, are felt very acutely. Some of it's the sort of more uh, the policy profile, 2019 manifesto, um, you know, particular views on, on, on various policy issues. But there is something also about the sort of overarching narrative. If you come out with then a, shambolic um, budget which is effectively is um, then you know just adding to the chaos adds a narrative problem if you come out with one that is so much a sort of horror show which again I I do think a lot of the stuff out at the moment is scare stories um, but if you come out with something that's just such a horror show most of the public won't really look at the detail of it they'll just think that anything bad is is, as a result of this government's um, cutting stuff or adding you know economic woes and so forth. So they've got to come out with something that implies some kind of jam tomorrow or um, in some way seems sensible enough that, um, yes, we've got to have some hard times, but we're all in it together, another Hancock phrase, um, but, um, you know, gives at least Conservatives something that they can talk about on the doorsteps for the next sort of six months or so um, to try and then claw back something in sort of 2023, uh so that they get to a better narrative. So the narrative framing... For all of this is almost as important as the sort of detail of of what's going into it.
0: And, and historically, Kathy, these moments are, are sort of all about the chancellor. But in this case, it feels different, doesn't it? I mean, this is this fiscal event is is really going to define Sunak's premiership?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I read something when um, Liz Truss appointed Jeremy Hunt that sort of implied that she wanted to sort of offload all this nasty stuff onto him. Um, Sunak then coming in, both being a former chancellor and keeping Jeremy Hunt on, um, it is impossible for sort of him to intertwine his responsibility for it. And in the same way that Liz Truss was... Um, ultimately responsible for the, the mini budget that brought down first her chancellor and then her. Um, Sunak can't distance himself for us. I mean, the most, you know, I talked about the possibility of chaos. The most, um, illogical and terrible thing to happen would be some kind of rabbit out the hat that um, Hunt announces that then number 10 say, oh, he didn't tell us he was going to do that. Um, That's another reason why you can imagine Sunak has been wanting to sort of pour over everything that that Hunt is doing in these few weeks.
0: And Henry, is there any way in which the new government can persuade voters at this stage that this is a new administration with a new plan? Or is it just inevitable that it's seen as uh, continuity with the the Conservative Party, which has been in power for twelve years,
1: I mean, the the Conservatives until recently have done a really remarkable job um, of persuading voters that they that they've regenerated into a new government um, when they've when they've been in power for as long as they have. I think again, the problem is just that there's there's no positive sense of forward direction here. You know, it, it, if Rishi Sunak had come in perhaps in the summer when you know without the without the whole trust. Stuff um, and been able to push forward with whatever a positive Sunak agenda looked like, then maybe I think it would have been an uphill struggle. I think there's only so many times you can sort of pull the same trick. But maybe they'd have been able to give voters the sense of like, right, new team, new direction, great. But as it is, the 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 centerpiece of this government, apart from a couple of ill-advised things like the Bill of Rights Bill, which is apparently back, is going to be this austerity program. There's no there's no positive message for the nation here. So I think it's very difficult to see how voters even if 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 they do carve rishi sunak off from the rest of the conservative period i don't see how that's a positive thing because rishi sunak will simply be mr cuts so so no i mean maybe he can he can win the next election you know on the ground labor have a huge uphill struggle after how far behind they were in 2019, you know, the, the, to go to win an overall majority, they do need to start overturning some some really big conservative uh, constituency majorities. So, if somehow over the next two years, Rishi Sunak can bring the polls closer, not necessarily back in the lead, but closer, then you know the Conservatives could maybe pull off an upset. But I, it's very difficult to see how he could do it. He doesn't have the political room for manoeuvre. He doesn't have a cohesive parliamentary party to do behind what he wants to do. He doesn't have the fiscal room.
3: Uh, I don't
1: see how he does it myself.
0: And Tom, in terms of spending cuts, what will you be looking out for?
3: So I think I think one of the interesting things to watch for is the balance between spending cuts and tax rises. So George Osborne, who we understand is is back in uh, Number Eleven, advising when he went for his program of austerity was much more sort of heavily focused on cuts. Uh, but clearly, you know, as our performance tracker has highlighted, we're in a very much worse position than we were in, in 2010, uh, services have been cut, cut to the bone and are performing pretty poorly across the board. So any further spending cuts are going to cause really big problems. And I think if you start to see freeze on salaries as well, you're going to see more strikes and sort of uh, disruption there. Um, so I think that then leads you towards you know what are the easier areas for, for chancellors to, to raid in these types of situations. There's not very many Easy options, whichever direction you move in. Clearly, he's probably going to look at things like overseas aid. Probably look at some of the capital investment, but again, that starts to hit at some of the the growth priorities. The other area, which I think you know, apart from having to sort of try and, as Kath says, find some sort of positive vision, what is sort of soon act optimistic area for people to focus on. Is it education and the kind of skills agenda under Gillian Keegan or something like that? I think the other thing which they have to do in this budget is is on energy, because that is a a huge uh, cost at the moment uh, to the public finances. And they've said they're going to find a replacement for the energy price guarantee. We're also waiting to see this energy saving campaign. (laughs) It's getting colder. And that's one of the things that could save uh, the government quite a bit of money, but we haven't seen that yet.
0: And Kath, there'll be much made, no doubt, about the OBR's forecasts uh, mm. around the, the fiscal statement. If nothing else, this is going to be a good autumn statement for the rehabilitation of financial institutions after they were rejected by Liz Truss or not? Well, yes
2: and no. I mean, I think um, the the importance of OBR forecasting and politicians sort of standing behind it and being sounding all supportive and so forth will will definitely be there. Um, I think the really interesting question, though, is uh, what has happened to the Bank of England during this sort of uh, two, we're now into the third month um, sort of experience, because um, on the one hand, you know, you had um, Kwarteng and and Trust sort of coming out talking about how much they respected the Bank of England's independence, etc, etc. But there have been a number of commentators starting to talk about um, you know, the, the governor, um, his competency, questions about the remit, questions about the sort of balance of, of what the bank is trying to achieve versus what the government is trying to achieve, the tension there and so forth. And, um, have started to see commentators sort of you know questioning do we need to look again at, at the bank of england and not necessarily its overarching independence but um uh, its its terms of reference the way in which it operates etc cetera, etc cetera. so i don't think it is just a sort of clear picture of um yes uh, these institutions are safe and everyone now completely respects them it has also sort of opened
0: up questions about how does the whole system work um and and is there a better way of doing some of it sorts of questions we're very interested in. And I should flag at this point, next Friday, we're running an event at the IFG to discuss everything we learn about the government's fiscal plans with the OBR chair, Richard Hughes, who's joining our panel. So do join us in person or online for that. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Many thanks to Kath Haddon, Tom Sass, and to Henry Hill. Great that you could join us. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. And please do leave us a review. I mentioned our fiscal event earlier, but that's just one of four great events we're running next week. One on public spending, one on human rights, and what should be a fascinating discussion with the Information Commissioner, John Edwards. You can find out more about all of them at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk, where you can also access all our latest commentary and analysis. I don't think Rishi Sunak is quite at the I'm a Prime Minister, get me out of here stage quite yet, but he's certainly had a busy start to the job, and that's before he's even got the autumn Statement. See you next week.